This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. We check the data, how much saffron we actually import to United States, or we import it to United States. In 2019, we imported more than 70, 70 tons. That means 70 million grams of saffron to United States. Welcome to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm your co-host, Jerry Clark, with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension, serving as an agricultural agent in Chippewa County. And joining me as my co-host today is Evan Henthorne. Yeah, so thanks, Jerry, so much for the invitation to be a part of this. I know I am super excited to um, learn about our product today, Saffron. Um, Originally, when you sent me the... The, the invite, I had to do a little little bit of research, um, but I'm excited to uh, connect today with our presenters, um, Margaret and Arash and Jonathan, and really dive into learning how we can uh, make this a more common product here in the great state of Wisconsin. So welcome, Margaret, Arash, and John. I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time today to introduce us to this crop called um, uh, saffron and again Margaret and Arash are, are researchers at the University of Vermont and, and John is local right here in Wisconsin and we'll have them introduce themselves uh, here in a minute. So uh, yeah finding out about saffron and we're just going to give this a high level view today as far as uh, what it is and, and uh, where it's found and how it grows and those kind of things. So um, I'll just turn uh, Margaret you want to introduce yourself quickly? Yes I'm uh a research entomologist at the University of Vermont. And uh, you might ask, why would someone who works on entomology be involved with saffron? And it all gets down to, uh, we're there to address the questions and issues that face uh, growers in Vermont and beyond. And uh, develop diversifying production is critical to the small farmers of Vermont. and. So that's why we got involved. Great. Arash? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having us in your program. Uh, my name is Arash Khalegulab Behbahani, as I said, and I'm a research associate, especially work on the Saffron Research Project at the University of Vermont. And uh, yeah, in this program, we are going to talk about, I will go to talk about the details of our project uh, and saffron development, saffron production development in the United States. Great. And John, you're a farmer from Wisconsin that uh, we've connected with over the last couple of weeks setting this program up. So welcome, John. Thank you. I enjoying the opportunity to be here. I appreciate Margaret and the team and Arash and, and Vermont. It's been great work. So uh, thank you for in- inviting me to be a part of this. Um, I've enjoyed growing saffron, started in 2017. And uh, I live in the Fox Cities area, uh, Kimberly, and our small produce farm is in Greenville, which is just outside of the Fox, you know, in the Fox Cities. So I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Great. And so, um, 
yeah, just uh, talking to uh, maybe Margaret quickly. What is this crop, and you know, how does it grow between uh, and, and Jonathan as well? You can chime in, but uh, what what is it? I guess uh, saffron. We see it in stores, but you know, what is it, and how does it grow? Uh, Arash, you want to start with that? Sure. Uh, saffron is well known as the most expensive spice in the world, but why is that technically? or actually, actually saffron is dehydrated or dry. The stigmas of flowers of Crocus sativus. Crocus sativus is a fall blooming crocus. That means it produces flowers in fall. So when you pick up the flowers, separate the stigmas and dry them in the oven or whatever that you have, the product that you will have or you will get uh, we call it saffron. Perfect. Thank you, Arash. So kind of kind of moving along here, um, Margaret or Arash, do you want to like kind of give some, a little bit of background of how did you get into this? How did you get into saffron? What, what drove you there? Or, you know, was this a path that you knew or was it like a left field kind of project that you just stumbled upon? Well, Arash, uh, the, Arash's wife was a graduate student here at our laboratory working on insect killing fungi and he came to finish up his uh, PhD um, and be with his wife and he mentioned one day, geez, why don't you grow saffron here? And initially I thought, eh, I don't think that would really work very well in Vermont because it's too darn cold. And um, I had tried growing saffron many years ago and I had planted the corms in the fall, like they said, and then I waited for the spring for them to bloom because I didn't realize they were fall blooming. So if they bloomed, I never saw them. <laughs> and so I assumed based on my limited experience that it would not grow well. But then when we started thinking about it more, we thought, well, everybody's, um, well, lots of people now are uh, putting up high tunnels in Vermont and they often grow tomatoes in the summertime and make a lot of money that way. And then they grow uh, winter greens in the fall and winter. And they don't make very much money on those crops, that shoulder crop. And so we started thinking about it. And at that time we assumed that saffron would not survive outside our cold winter uh, conditions. And so that's why we started out with the idea of growing them in milk crates. And the theory was you could pick the milk crates up, take them outside in the springtime when you wanna put the tomatoes in. That was our original premise. We've moved on from there and we realize in fact that saffron grows quite well outside. And so a lot of our work now is more focused on field production. So there are a lot of people that are still growing it in high tunnels or in greenhouses. Um, uh, home, home gardeners seem to like uh, using container grown uh, options, but for the larger professional commercial producers, I think they're gonna wanna do it in the field. Sure, sure. And maybe you mentioned this um, when you were doing a little introduction and I missed it, but can you just say again, how long have you been studying and working with saffron and handling it? Well, um, in terms of the research, we started it in 2015. Sure. So, I mean, that's 
it seems like it's not that long ago. So you're no. still pretty new to yourself. So you're continuously learning and um, growing with it as well. So sure. In fact, the one thing that kind of amazed us in, I think it was uh, March 2017, we did a workshop. And we thought, oh, maybe we'll get uh, 30 or 40 people. And we had over 100 people come and that from all over the country um, to little old Vermont. Um, and that's when uh, we realized that this whole concept had great potential. So, so Jonathan, as a producer, as a farmer, when did you, uh, did you connect with, with the University of Vermont and Margaret Narash or how did you get involved in Wisconsin after you figure, I mean, I think part of what I've realized is, yeah, Vermont's growing this, Wisconsin should be able to grow it. We're on the same latitude. So that's where I was coming from. But how did you get yeah. involved? Yeah, so I, I had, um, you know, my, my background, I, I grew up until um, I was eight in Ukraine and everyone grew food there, at least in the rural areas. So I came to the U.S. when I was eight. So food's always been, you know, agriculture been part of my life and my roots. Um, and then I was doing some nonprofit work and I learned about, you know, uh, just we need more growers, people producing local food. Um, so my wife and I have been looking for some small farm land to purchase. And we were looking at different products. We did some, you know, typical market farm veggies. And then I think it was in maybe 2017, I learned about saffron. And I think it was from Rumi. They're the, one of the largest local or Wisconsin, not Wisconsin, but national producers. They import product from Afghanistan and it was started by military veterans. Um, and I served in the military myself for over 12 years. And I thought, well, hey, if, if, if they can grow it in Afghanistan, I, I wanna try to figure out if I can grow it in Wisconsin. Um, so I did. And the, the biggest research that I was able to find was in Vermont, the saffron that um, and Margaret mentioned. It's, it's, it's just such a wealth of resources so I thought, well, maybe I'll try a little batch of, you know, in 2017. So I, I did some of the milk crates. I had a little high tunnel and I, I purchased about 200 corms. And then I planted those, harvested them, kind of diversified how I grew them. And I had about just under 0.9 of a gram that I harvested of the stigmas that were dried. And then since then, um, in 2018, I went to the conference um, in Vermont, learned a lot there from people. And then I purchased... Uh, 2,500 corms uh, from Morocco saffron, um, and then and then I harvested about um, let's see here, just under eight grams. And then every year ever since then, I've been kind of learning and adapting and seeing what works, what doesn't work, and we've been field growing them in our farm, uh, breadbasket farm in Greenville, Wisconsin. So um, that's kind of been my background in starting it. And I just wanted to add it as a value-added item and something that's lo grown locally. Um, I believe it's important the kind of food we're eating. And I think it'd be nice to also know like, hey, you can get this locally too. Um, and as uh, trying to do it in a way where it's offers sustainable wage, but also uh, a quality local product and Wisconsin loves producing home, homegrown things too. So I just wanted to be a part of that as well and learn. Yeah, awesome. So I think kind of with growing anything or raising any sort of a product, right, there's challenges or there's struggles. So Jonathan, can you just keep that conversation going? Like, what was a, a struggle or a challenge that you kind of faced with growing this saffron crop? Because 2017, I mean, that was only three years ago as we just started into 2021. So what kind of challenges did you encounter? Uh, it's, I think there was a, there's a few different challenges. Uh, first is like, well, I asked some of my friends that were organic farmers. We did a, a, a nonprofit urban farm. We collaborated on projects together. And I asked them, 
and they've never grown it. They didn't know of anyone else locally that was growing it. So I thought, well, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I thinking? Um, but I, I like a challenge. And I also, um, I think for me is like just the name, like you're pulling the stigma out of the flower. Like I just love the symbolism within it and the beauty it offers and the pollinators with the bees. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to work through this. Um, and some of the original challenges was we had a raised bed and we had rabbits. They just came and devoured, like had this nice foliage. This is after I harvested the flowers and then picked the stigmas out, but they devoured the foliage and it just pretty much put them off. To, it really set them back. And then I had some other ones that were in crates and I had those in a high tunnel, a small one, and they end up freezing and the weather, I didn't insulate them very well. Um, and I had, a, they all essentially rotted the next year. They didn't do well, they didn't grow. So that was the first year. And, and then I went to this conference and I kind of learned from other people in Vermont and you know from all over the country. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna grow outdoors, just, just like how other people are doing it in all over the Middle East and different, different climates. So then um, at that point, we had bought our, our small produce farm just under four acres. So we field uh, planted them and uh, we did decent, um, but weed control is an issue. And then also we had some deer damage initially a little bit, and then just some rodents um, and uh, some wetness in the fields. Um, but generally, it's, it's been a low maintenance crop other than the weeds and getting under, you know, ahead of them. Um, so then the crop can grow and multiply and the corms can develop. Um, and then, you know, next the year after have a good harvest ideally. Uh, you know, one thing when we, after our first workshop, um, I think a lot of people were interested because we were talking about how you could make maybe, I don't know, $100,000 from an acre of saffron which I think people saw dollar signs and they thought, oh, okay, I, I'm going to start a large operation of saffron. And, and from the very beginning and even now, we encourage growers who are saying, I want to try growing saffron, like Jonathan, um, don't start with 100,000 corms. Start small. See, exactly. this, it's not, even though it's a low maintenance crop, there's a two, two or three week period when it is very labor intensive. And so you got to be ready for that. You got to be ready to bend over a little bit. And so we have always encouraged any new emerging saffron grower to start small. And one of, I'm so happy that we did, uh, even though it's not good for business or it's you know the funding agencies they like to see large acreages of everything and um when we in vermont there were big problems with hemp production everybody started growing hemp they stopped growing corn and they started growing hemp and they lost gobs of money and i am so happy that we encouraged uh, growers to be conservative with production initially because just like Jonathan said there are little tweaks there's different things you got to learn how to do to make it work and if you do it on a hundred on a, a full acre you are going to lose money and so you start small you figure out what works for your situation and then you move forward and and scale up just like Jonathan's doing it you're doing it just right Jonathan <laughs> Yep, he's from Wisconsin. We always do that. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but you learned from Vermont. 
So um, along those lines then, uh, Margaret and Arash, so you've got um, this crop that has market potential. I, I think we see that you, you gave a great example of hemp, you know, everybody dove in, the market crashed, those kind of things. But um, kind of along the lines of, of the production side of it, you know, where do you get corms? How much does that cost? Can you, can you give us just a real high level cost of production or market synopsis of where this crop might go um, in the future or, you know, somewhere along those lines of, of the marketing and cost of production side? Okay, let, let me answer this question. It's a very good question. But be, before I answer this question, uh, it, uh, I want to mention one important thing. This project is pretty much new. It started in 2015, Saffron Production Research, but Saffron has a deeper root in United States. 300 years ago, uh, some people, Amish and Mennonite families, they brought saffron corms or saffron bulbs, technically are corms, to some part of United States, especially Pennsylvania. And uh, saffron, as I mentioned, has a deeper root than these five, these five years. So about the marketing, we, we actually get the saffron corns from, at this moment, we get the saffron corns from Netherlands for doing the research and most of the growers that we already have here, they got their saffron corns from Rocco Saffron or other Dutch companies in Netherlands. So about the market, uh, there, there is a potential for saffron market here in United States. One way to be started to answer this question, where, where we consume saffron was like, we check the data, how much saffron we actually import to United States or we import it to United States. And the data, the most recent data from UN Trade Center showed in 2019, we imported more than 70, 70 tons. That means 70 million grams of saffron to United States. So there is a market here. There is potential here and we hope that saffron growers, local growers, step up and find those markets and start to work on it. Just to uh, give you uh, a sense of what the potential value is, um, if you go to a health food store, you might be able to buy it for uh, $20 a gram, maybe, give or take. No way of knowing where it came from who picked it, anything. You have, it might say it's from Spain, but there's really no way of knowing whether it came from Spain or Afghanistan or anywhere else. There's, uh, it's, there's, it's a very murky thing. Um, in Vermont now, um, growers, and we're still talking about small uh, areas of production, people are selling it for between, 25 to 50 dollars a gram now so arash how much is that a pound if you're talking about a pound is around nine thousand dollars to twenty twenty two thousand dollars for a pound, per pound. Yeah. holy smokes um and it's more than gold for sure that's, right that's that, for sure that's that's gross not net and admittedly the time it takes right now to pick it and to separate it and dry it, that all takes time for sure. But um, 
uh, sometimes people say, oh, saffron, it's so labor intensive. Um, it's not worth it. And I have contended for a long time that if you grow high tunnel tomatoes, you start growing those in April or May, you put them in the ground, then you need to oh, prune them and do a lot of pest management. And then you finally get around to picking them and um, you do it all summer long, a little bit all summer long. Um, this crop is very similar to maple syrup, I'd have to say. It is very intensive at a period of time when a lot of growers are finished their field production. If, if maple syrup had to be produced in June and July, it would never have taken off. The reason it works is because growers can't get on the field in February and March and April. Same thing with production of saffron. It's just in, it's a beautiful shoulder crop. Um, and yes, intensive at that one period of time, but then it's over. Especially if you get the weed uh, management under control, yeah. which we've, we're figuring out ways of dealing with that. Don't forget, we need workers for just two or three weeks in fall. So it's labor intensive, but we are just talking about three weeks in fall. And saffron is a perennial crop. You can keep it for two, three, four, five years in the ground. So you don't need to replant the, plot, uh, the beds every year. So we're, de yeah, we're dealing with a perennial here, correct? I mean, it's That's right. plant it once, it's going to come back. And so Jonathan, is that kind of how you've, um, I mean, from the, the labor, we kind of talked about labor and that investment and that kind of thing. And you've got a couple thousand corms, I think is what you said. Um, so how, how, how does that straight from a farmer, you know, how's the management of that come harvest time? And uh, Margaret brought up weed, weed management, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, so I, I think for, you know, like, like um, Arash and Margaret said, it's very labor intensive during that period. And like, I'm going to use this year as a reference in um, tw well, this past year, 2020, we had a lot of growth. It kind of starts slower and then it ramps up and then, and then it's done. So basically for us, it was about, um, about the first week of October. And then by the first week of November, we were done. We might have a few stragglers that were growing afterwards or slightly before if you notice them in time. Um, so pretty much every day or every other day you're harvesting and picking the, the, the purple flower as much intact as possible. And then you're taking that with you and then you're separating the, the purple flowers, the stamen, that's the yellow part. And then, and then, um, and then the actual the stigma, which is what the spice is from. And then you're drying that. So we use um, a dehydrator, small dehydrator. Um, and it just, it's, it's very tedious process, um, but really dialing in those processes and learning along the way has been helpful for us to kind of minimize the deficiencies um, and learning just, tr you know, tricks, I guess, but also really just um, good practices. And for us, uh, we, we intend to be organic certified. So we've been following those practices for the last few years. So we don't use any herbicide our pesticide, uh, we've been just trying to do it naturally. And part of that is you start, you know, with good soil, with good management, we do like a 30 inch uh, bed system for small market gardeners, it's a pretty standard size. And then we do uh, five rows um, every six inches apart. So similar to garlic, as far as spacing, we actually mirrored how we planted the garlic, because we also grow garlic 
in the former spot where garlic was. Um, and we've been growing in that same spot since. Um, but, but yeah, there's a lot of challenges, especially when the weeds and grasses are growing. And ideally in the summer and spring, you want your, your, the foliage to keep growing because that's what's going to allow it to photosynthesize and let those corms, those mother corm or the daughter corms from the mother corm expand. So if you're not getting good foliar growth, you're, you're not going to have probably a good harvest or even maybe any corms left in the next year. You have to also make sure that you're not neglecting it through the season. Otherwise, you, your corms will be gone. Yeah. And Jonathan, I just want to follow up. So what kind of um, size of an operation in, this, in the um, terms of workforce do you have? You know, is it just you? And I think you mentioned your wife or do you hire a couple of people for just that kind of fall time or, you know, can you elaborate a little bit more on, on that kind of? Yeah. So we're, we're a very small market farm and this isn't, I don't do this, uh, the farm yet as a full-time operation because we, you know, we're, we live in a different spot than our farmland is. So I do some nonprofit work and then some technology work. But ideally, we want to do living on our farmland. We have chickens and ducks. It's, it's, it's a lot of work to go back and forth and things. So, um, but we wanted this as like uh, Margaret said, a shoulder crop in the, in the end of the year. So our land that we actually grow the saffron, it, it's a very small spot. It's a, it's a, a bed of about 25 by 50 feet. And then we don't even have all that planted. Um, and that's where we have our, our beds, 30 inch beds and about 18 inches in between. Um, so it's just very small. We don't hire anyone. My wife, um, Mara, and my you know partner, Brad Basket Farm, and our six and a half year old son, Micah. We harvest them together. It's a fun thing to do at the end of the year when everything else is kind of dying and just like look at the old tomatoes and it's like, oh man, we have to go clean those up. You know, it's a beautiful addition to have because you have some pretty flowers and then the bees, they, they love them too. They go and pollinate, they get the, you know, get ready for winter themselves. So, um, so yeah, at this point, we want to start small and as a complementary crop. Um, and we've really just been a researching at this point, researching and process improvement. And so we learn. Picking flowers with your family. Now that, that doesn't sound too, too darn bad. So <laughs> that sounds no. like a great option. That's fun. Uh, you might ask who, who's growing saffron anyway in the United States. And um, I would, we don't have a total handle on the situation. One reason is uh, it's still such an emerging uh, crop that the USDA doesn't uh, collect data on that kind of thing. But um, probably there are a lot of home gardeners that are growing relatively small amounts, kind of like what I wanted to do back before I knew what it was. And um, then there are a lot of part-time farmers like Jonathan um, and maybe 15% of the people that we are interacting with are actually commercial saffron growers that have fairly large uh, acreages or not probably maybe an acre, probably generally less than an acre. But the amazing thing is all the different kinds of people that have contacted us that are interested in growing it. And one of the common things is people who maybe are not living in Vermont. So a lot of people maybe have land here and that has been out of production and they want to come back when they retire and have something to do. And geez, 
Vermont is the most beautiful place in the world in October, November. Who wants to be anywhere else? So you just stay home and you harvest the saffron and make a lot of money that way. So there's lots of different kinds of people. We also get calls from people from the Midwest who are not making a go of it with their field crops and they're looking for a different kind of crop to um, to take over from corn or soybeans, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it's all about diversification. Yeah, and that's part of why we started this alternative podcast series was to introduce uh, to Wisconsin uh, growers and, and yeah. landowners and that uh, there's some alternatives out there. And I think with uh, Arash, with, with Saffron then, is that, um, what, what kind of yields do you, I mean, we guys talking yields and we're talking grams here. I mean, this is, is it so many grams per flower and maybe Jonathan can pipe in too, but how does the actual, you know, uh, we get the production, we plant it in the spring, uh, get some product, is, are we gonna get a flower that, that first fall or, you know, kind of explain that process along with, you know, how do we, we know we gotta pick the flower, but then, you know, what's our yield? What do we expect? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, saffron, as other people mentioned, has a special life cycle. It's a fall blooming crocus. Actually, to produce saffron, you have to plant saffron corms uh, in September, August and September. And then in 40, 50 days, you will see the flowers. So very soon. Uh, in mid-October to mid-November is the blooming season, is the blooming time, is the time that you should harvest the flowers. Usually, some, somewhere between 150 to, to 200 flowers produce a gram saffron for us. So we harvest the saffron flowers, then the green leaves will come up all over the winter. We will have the green leaves. And in the summer, when the weather gets warmer, the plants go to the sleep that we call it dormancy. That means we don't have any green leaves over the summer on the ground, but we have dormant corns under the ground. And they are responsible to, or they will be responsible to produce saffron flowers for the in the next fall for us. It is the life cycle of saffron. So about the yield, initially we were talking about, can we just produce saffron? Can saffron corn survive in this climate, cold climate? After five years trial, I should say the answer of that question is absolutely yes. And the yield was really promising. That was amazing. In one of those research plots that I planted this year, I harvested equal to 1717 pounds per acre. It's like three, four, five times more than average of the the yield average in other saffron producing regions. So that means the yield here is awesome. Why? Because of the soil, because of the climate. And don't forget, we, we are rely on rain fed system. We don't even put water on the plants here in this climate. So yeah, it is the story about the yield here. And Jerome, I had uh, this year, we we counted because um, trying to get the data is really important to see how we can improve. And we harvested just under um, 1500 uh, flowers. So that, that's a lot of counting, you know, so we always every day when we harvested, we pick them, 
you know, count them as we go and just make sure we don't mess up our counts. Otherwise we recount it. But well, we ended up having about nine grams of dried saffron thread. Um, but there's people, how do you get those nine grams? Um, so there's different schools of thought of, you know, what part do you include? We've just been doing the entire stigma so that they don't separate as much. But maybe the, the purists will say, you got to clip any part that's slightly yellow. So it's only the, the dark portion you keep. Um, at this point, we're just trying to keep the whole thing intact. Um, I think it adds a little bit of weight, not significant. But, and then that's from um, after having been growing in the soil since 2018. And we did end up losing some corms in 2019. We had some uh, weather, snow, and then also my, some health issues in our family that we just weren't able to, to harvest or maintain. So our production, we, we harvested just under four grams in 2019. So it's not just like you just set it and totally forget it. You have to maintain really intensive. Um, and, but we, yeah, averaged about maybe just under 170 flowers for one gram this year. And I think in 2018, it was very similar as well. So Jonathan, can you just talk about where you sell your saffron product locally or here in Wisconsin? Yeah, so Evan, that's a great question because growing this, um, ideally, I, I don't want to just do it as a hobby or it's fun. It is fun. And I do enjoy that benefit of it. Um, uh, we haven't we, we haven't sold initially because we didn't know if we were going to sustain this. Plus, it's really difficult to try to keep up with those prices if you're trying to compete on a local scale, um, trying to find that price point has been challenging. So we wanna research. So at this point we are selling through uh, Camel Cooperative, which is a military veteran family cooperative that we started in the Fox Valley. And then we're doing direct consumer. Uh, and this is meant to be very sm small income stream for us as a complimentary source. And then as we get the processes more refined, uh, we wanna uh, be able to I have other uh, growers that we collaborate with, ideally other veteran or producers that are close to us, so we can kind of collaborate that way. Um, we're not in the point where we want to sell to um, any wholesale accounts or anything like that because it is very labor intensive and we're trying to command a more premium price because of knowing where it's from. We grew it following organic practices, um, but part of it is the education, helping people learn about local saffron and really in Wisconsin, with your program, what you're doing today is super helpful um, because I, when I look at anything else for Wisconsin Saffron, I don't find anything. Um, so it's really important, the work that Margaret and the team's doing there, but also uh, your podcast, bring awareness. So people do know that there's more choices. Uh, just to give you an idea, we did a survey last year on SafronNet and we got about 24% of the people that answered uh, were making between a thousand and five thousand uh, dollars from their saffron per year. Um, Twelve percent made over ten thousand dollars, and admittedly, that's gross. That's not net, um, and so obviously it comes down quite a bit. Uh, there was at least one grower that was making over fifty thousand. So, so there are some large growers now. Um, and so it just shows the potential that's out there. And for, for, saffron, for the saffron market, for the local saffron market to um, um, expand, there needs to be, you know, marketing and uh, some of that is teaching people how to use it. Um, there, I've been amazed at how many people know what saffron is, but not a lot of people know what to do with it. 
Um, and so part of a whole marketing program would, it, would be to, in, to, to get people educated and to find, to let them know why growing, buying local saffron is important. Saffron is the most adulterated um, spice in the world. So when you're getting what is labeled as saffron, how much of it is really saffron and how much of it is something uh, else entirely? At least ideally, if you know your producer um, because they're your neighbor, you're more guaranteed that you're gonna get a good quality product. Sure, sure. So my next question, and I think it's going to be for any one of you three to answer, it's kind of a two-part question. So one, if I understand correctly, um, is there any regulations or protocols that go into growing saffron? Um, just because it is going for, or it can go for human consumption. Um, and then kind of like the second part to that question is, are there any standards um, to growing it, right? Like if we think about growing potatoes, sometimes producers want um, a specific size or a specific color. Um, so is there anything along those lines that, um, that are a standard um, in the growing of saffron? So I can speak to the matter of sort of state regulations and Arash can talk about some of the quality standards. Um, in Vermont, there are no limitations in terms of uh, people selling saffron. They can sell it in the farmer's market, they can sell it from their home, they can sell it uh, to the restauranters directly or to wholesalers. Um, what we've learned, however, is that some states, because of the uh, food safety uh, regulations, they're not allowed to dry saffron in an uninspected uh, uh, food processing area. They have, to, they have to go to a food processing, a registered food processing um, site, and which is uh, quite limiting, I'd have to admit. So the states where that is an issue, um, it's, uh, it's a hindrance for sure. And so growers, it would be wise for growers to check with their state um, ag departments to find out what the regulations are. Because it's so, it's, it really depends on the state and we haven't had the funding that we would need to be able to really investigate that further. Sure. Uh, about the quality, you know, when you are talking about the color of saffron or having a standard, we technically are talking about chemical components in the saffron. We have three main chemical components in the saffron. They are responsible for the taste, the smell, and the color of saffron, kerosene, picrocrosine, and saffronol. So international organization of a standard, ISO, has a special standard for concentration of those three chemical components and they categorize different class of saffron, classes of saffron. Uh, so when we have higher concentration of those chemical components that I mentioned, that means we actually have uh, a better saffron. But it's a difficult and complicated procedure for growers to assess the quality of their products. So is the reason we at the University of Vermont, we are cooperating with the chemistry department to find a better and easy way to assess the quality and categorize our saffron quality. And maybe in the future, we, may, we will make a protocol for that issue. Other thing that has been particularly gratifying for me is um, 
from the very beginning when we started and we got a lot of interest among growers, um, you know, some growers are, some uh, segments of the agricultural industry tend to be, oh, quite competitive. And sometimes growers don't want to share their ideas or their information with other growers. And um, it's never been like that in the maple syrup industry, I'd have to say. I, I've always been amazed at how collaborative that industry has been. And I'm happy to say that the same has been true with saffron so far. Um, and so when you hear Jonathan talk about how he's keeping data on how many flowers he picks and what kind of weight he gets, et cetera, et cetera, um, or how he's dealing with weeds or rabbits or whatever. Um, that kind of information is being shared broadly among uh, all the growers on SafranNet. And it's just, it's really lovely to uh, see that people aren't being competitive, they're being collaborative. And to me, um, the success in the long run of the North American saffron industry is going to depend on everyone working together. Even though I realize, you know, just like Vermont produces the best maple syrup in the world, um, probably it also produces the best saffron. But um, despite that, I bet the saffron in Wisconsin could be a close runner up. <laughs> I, I would venture to say, I think that Wisconsin saffron may very well be better than Vermont. <laughs> so, That's but, our goal. That's our goal. But, but you have, you had a great head start. You have a great team. And I think that's part of the, the research part of this. Um, the surveys, you know, when people on the saffron that get this, it's important that we fill those out and that anyone else that's participating, share that information because others will use it. They might learn that maybe this isn't something they want to participate in, or you know what, maybe they'll try it. Um, but that also helps for funding and understanding how we can learn. There's a lot of, you know, resources available through federal funding and things, but making sure that, that those resources are used to help, especially, I think, small producers, because, you know, you're talking about the different regulations and things. Thankfully, there's a lot of opportunities for direct consumer options or cottage food laws in different states, and those laws all vary. But I think, you know, all states really need to look at how can they support small growers or small scale farms because we lack some of those other resources available to maybe large conglomerate food producers or companies which they do get a lot of resource in different ways so if there's creative ways to find and support small growers and this could be a great complementary crop um, you know because you can't just like the all your eggs in one basket if you're trying to just grow one thing and you're expecting you're going to do really well at it well, if you diversify with small crops or diversity of different crops and be good at it, and you can produce a crop for your community, that's something to celebrate. And, you know, quality food, it brings people together uh, and the, just the connectivity of it. Food is, is, is great. And I, I'm just thankful for, to be a part of that. So um, I hope in the research everyone else is doing, if we can help encourage some of that research and collaboration, that, that's awesome. So thank you. Um, I think it's worth also saying thank you to Arash. You know, he's originally from Iran and um, I think we as North Americans, not as residents of North America, 
um, we're lucky to have uh, had the opportunity to learn from the part of the world where more saffron is grown than anywhere else. And we can, we can do a good job of it. We will never be Iran. Um, and, but it's lovely to be able to learn from him. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you so much. I'm about crying. <laughs> well, you even shared like no, different I, I like recipes. That. So from your own family and you know that you use in the, the workshops, that's incredible to have that. Like that's just Thank sharing you. part of your culture and that's that's a wonderful thing. Thank, Thank you, you so you much. Thank you so much. Well, well, as an extension program, I think that that this can just build on itself. I think that's how these partnerships happen. If Vermont and Wisconsin can connect and, and, and expand this, and then we can work on how to use it and start to, with recipes and, and being able to use it correctly and, and uh, really expand that demand. I think we're, uh, this, this sounds like a crop that could, uh, could definitely fit us. And like Jonathan said, a small, a small acreage, uh, sustainable, uh, environmentally friendly, you know, all of those things that we're looking to check, check the boxes on in agriculture. seems like saffron's uh, one of those things to, to, uh, to look into. Anything I just, I'll just go around the horn or Evan, anything you want, otherwise we'll let our guests kind of give a final, uh, uh, final comment or two, and then we'll uh, wrap it up. Yeah, I have learned a lot in this 45 minutes that we've been chatting and I, I, like Jerry, I'll retweet what he said. I am thankful that you guys were able to join us and I hope we can keep the conversation going and continue learning. So Margaret, any final thoughts on uh, where we're headed? Well, we look forward to having future podcasts like this. And we love the fact that people outside of Vermont are interested in what we're doing and can benefit from what we're studying. Great. Um, Arash, any final comments? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Actually, the thing that we forgot to say, saffron is a medicinal plant as well. It has anti-depression, anti-carcinogenic effects. So when we are thinking about that, we see that pharmaceutical companies and market uh, maybe is a, has a potential in this market technically for saffron, U.S. grown saffron. So uh, that was just for growers to be motivated to plant saffron this year. <laughs> yeah, great. And that's a great, I don't want to say a teaser for maybe our, one of our next uh, segments, but I think the marketing piece of this is, is a great uh, we, could segue, spend an, we could yeah. spend an hour on uh, yeah. doing that. Right. I really piqued our interest today. So Jonathan, as our uh, resident Wisconsin farmer, uh, where do you see the potential going with this crop? And you know, how can, uh, how can we support one another to maybe make this take off a little bit? Yeah, I, I think, you know, what, what Arash had said is, the medicinal potential aspects of it and the research of it. And I forgot to mention this earlier. One of the reasons why we did start growing it, my wife has, she suffered from endometriosis for many years and adenomyosis. And that was one of the things that kind of drew us to it, knowing that it can help alleviate some of that, um, some of the pain uh, to, to, for endometriosis sufferers and some of the um, health benefits potentially um, for depression and other things. And I just think it's not only for medicinal, for growing, for farmers, but I think there's a lot more research opportunities here too for what those values can be. And you know, UW Wisconsin, it's a huge research school, so maybe they could do more research on it. But um, for, for for me, we, we want to just keep this as a small, uh, diversified crop. Um, there are there are some challenges and opportunities with it too. But boy, that research 
from University of Vermont. It's incredible, um, great people, and I'm just thankful that I've learned so much from them. And I'm looking forward to helping any way I can. Thank you. Yeah, and there was a couple of resources I think uh, that were mentioned, Margaret, and we'll we'll put more of these on our podcast website. But uh, those resources again, uh, you said there's a website or some things that uh, people can go to to learn more. Yep. Uh, there's our website, um, and you'll, I guess, put that on your, uh, on your website. And SafronNet, which is a free uh, email listserv with uh, over 750 people from all over the U.S., um, Europe, and uh, Iran and Afghanistan. So it shows a broad uh, spectrum of individuals, growers, researchers, marketers, everything. Well, appreciate it. Evan, any final comments? I think we're good, Jerry. Appreciate that. Well, again, thank you, Margaret, Arash, and John for taking your time today uh, on the Cutting Edge podcast. Uh, once again, we will uh, probably be discussing this crop uh, in the future uh, as, uh, as our guests return, if they're open to that, and this hasn't been too painful for them. So we appreciate your time, and uh, we will uh, talk to you down the road. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.